as Jessica mentioned, uh, I am not Kyle Carlson, all right? He's out of town this morning. I was going to uh, do everything I could to dress like him, maybe some swag-tastic shoes, great pants, maybe a blazer, and the whole thing kind of went to crumbles whenever I realized I couldn't fix my hair exactly like his, so you're going to have to deal with me this morning. Um, he is out of town. We've been in the book of Galatians for the last uh, several weeks. Um, I'm going to let Kyle tackle Galatians. I don't want to do that a disservice, so I'm going to do a little standalone message here in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 33. So that's where we'll be this morning. What the morning looks like is I'll read the verses, I'll read the passage, and then just like we do pretty much every time I preach, we'll go through them verse by verse and just see what the Lord has for us in this passage. And then I have one application point, and then we'll take the supper, and then as Jessica mentioned, we have a promotion Sunday uh, for our students. I'm pretty excited about that. I have no idea what it entails, uh, but I hope... There's some cool gifts. Uh, so, there's a thousand ways to get in a swimming pool. A thousand. I'm a firm believer that the steps are not one of them. So we're just about to cannonball into the water and start reading our passage. No need to stand up. You've already done your, uh, you know, your chair squats all this morning. So let's go ahead and read Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 33. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and it is not able to finish, all who see his work begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who is coming, or him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Beautiful. So we have a nice, easy passage this morning, right? Um, whenever Kyle originally asked me to preach, I was trying to think of this really nice a uh, sermon that would be tidy and everybody would get excited about it. And the Lord kept laying this passage on my heart. And that's really frustrating. Uh, and I'm terrified to actually preach it because that means I kind of have to live it. Um, and that is something I'm, like I said, frankly terrified about. But uh, again, we're just going to go through this verse by verse and see what the Lord has for us. So starting with verse 25, I'll just read verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them. So I'm going to stop right here. This might not seem like a lot, but now great crowds accompanied him and turned and said to them. So there was a bunch of people, right? That's what great crowds means. There's a bunch of people. 
And something that I think we forget is that there's a 40,000 foot view going on here. We just see this passage and we forget everything that happened before that. But if you look, and again, so I'm going to do something that, uh, that when I see preachers do this, I'm like, what are they doing? I'm going to like read verses off of my notes and not in this luscious Bible that I have right here. Everybody's been a part of that. We're like, where the pastor's like, turn to Matthew 3, and then they like flip to Genesis on their Bible and they're reading on their paper. I'm going to do that. So I'm going to call that out uh, this morning just so it's out in front of everybody. But if you look in Luke 4.37, it says, and reports went out into every place into the surrounding region. Um, so Jesus' fame was spreading like wildfire, right? And, and it says, from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. That's in Luke 5.17. And then from seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, that's from Luke 6, 17, and the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country, that's in Luke 7, 17. So needless to say, news was traveling fast of this man they call Jesus. Like fast, like faster than a post from Dwayne The Rock Johnson. It was going everywhere. Everybody knew him, okay? Well, we all knew the story, and I think it's important to take a look, take a look back, take a step back, and if you just go from the beginning of Luke and you look at all the titles of the various things that have happened before Luke chapter 14, you'll find that Jesus was born. Then when he was a young boy, his parents lost him. He was at the temple preaching to seasoned rabbis, right? Fast forward 20 years later, he goes through some temptation in the wilderness. Next thing you know, Jesus is preaching in temples and he's healing people left and right. He calls the disciples, then he heals some more people. Then he preaches the best sermon ever preached. Then he heals some more people, does some more preaching, and then feeds a whole bunch of people. Next thing you know, he raises some joker back from the, lot, or back from the dead. He tells some puzzling stories that we call parables. He calms a storm. He casts out demons, and he heals some more people. He sends his disciples out. He feeds even more people. He has this incredible moment atop a mountaintop we call the transfiguration. He casts out more demons, and he preaches some more. All right, so a lot of things are happening. And then we get to Luke 9, chapter, or Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 62. And it says, basically, a, a few bold people stepped up. A few disciples, not the actual disciples that were called, but a few bold people stepped up and said, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere, anywhere. And the, the first person, Jesus goes to him and says, listen, you're not going to fit in here. If you're following me, you are not going to fit in here. It's going to be a long, hard road. And the second person comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. Ask where I'll, I'll go. But first, I want to go bury my dad. And Jesus says, we don't have time for that. We don't have time to go bury your dad. Grab your stuff. Let's go. Follow me. So obviously that didn't work out well. And the third guy comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere, but let me go tell my family bye, right? And Jesus says, listen, if you're focused back there, you can't focus on my ministry here. So nonetheless, these people had the greatest intentions, but their priorities were slightly off. They really liked these good things like comfort, conclusion, and even uh, compassion. But those, th those things that they were talking about, those things that they, uh, that they held on to tightly at the moment, 
took priority over Christ. So that was kind of a rabbit trail. It kind of has to do with this sermon, but let's go back to uh, our story and where we are. So then, after that, Jesus sends out more people from his entourage. He sends about 72 more people out to spread the news of him. And then there were more parables. Next thing you know, he teaches us how to pray, and that's really important, right? Our Father, our name, I'll be the name, you get it. Um, and then he preaches more, and then for a change of pace, more parables, more preaching, and more healing. And that brings us to our passage right here. So I think it's pretty significant when he says, now a great crowd accompanied him. So why did a great crowd accompany him? It was all the stuff that was going on before that. This is just scratching the surface. But you had a bunch of people following Jesus around, right? At this point, you had more people following Jesus than like there were groupies for the Beatles in the summer of 1963. There was people all around Jesus. They were just waiting. They were waiting to see what he was going to do, to witness his next miracle, to see what it was like to walk and talk with Jesus. So in trying to paint this scene, I think it's really important to take the Bible stories to life. So I was thinking of how, how I could do that. And, and, and don't laugh too hard about this, but uh, I thought of Forrest Gump, right? There's this scene where, um, where Forrest said he just felt like running, so he ran, right? Uh, and he had been running for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. I wrote that down because I wanted to get it right. But you've got this, this story or this, this scene where Forrest is running in the middle of nowhere. He's got this, these awesome mountains in the background. He's got, it's like this desolate road. And behind him, he's got about 100 people following him. He's got this long, luscious mane of hair. He's got this like scraggly looking beard. And if I was to kind of categorize his fashion, I would say it would be more like hobo chic or something like that. And so he's running, running along, and he stops. So everybody behind him stops, right? And then he turns around, and in the crowd, a, a guy says, everybody quiet, I think he's going to say something, right? This is setting up the scene. He's running, he stops, turns around. Somebody says, everybody quiet, he's about to say something. And he says one of the most significant things ever. He says, I want to get this quote verbatim. Ah, he says, I'm pretty tired. I think I'll go home now, right? And then in the crowd, this guy's like, wait, what are we supposed to do? And then Forrest just starts walking, and the crowd parts, right? And he goes home. And he said, and just like that, my running days was over, you know? <laughs> and so I think it's pretty significant, this scene. You've got Jesus. I want to paint this again. You've got Jesus, and he's walking, and you've got, at this point, thousands behind him because he's fed a lot. He's healed a bunch of people. He's cast out demons. He's done all these amazing things. You've got these people that are literally hanging and clinging to every word that he says and waiting to see what he's about to do. He's walking, likely en route somewhere. He's going somewhere, probably to preach, and he stops. So I can imagine, you know, just everybody's like, walking, walking, and then stop. What's about to happen? And he turns around, and he says something so significant way more significant than Forrest Gump, I promise. He says, are you sure you want to follow me? Do you even know what this means for you? Have you stopped? Have you thought about the consequences of what you're doing? And then verse 26 gives us a small taste 
into those consequences of what he means. So verse 26 says this, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, his own mother, wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. If anyone wants to follow me, you better hate your family. That's essentially what he said, right? So I can imagine the confusion of these people that are behind him. These people have walked with him and talked with him, and they have seen the utmost compassion flowing through him. And then all of a sudden he says, you want to follow me? You better hate your family. These people are probably like, what just happened? Like, did he get a hold of some sour goat milk or what? Like, he's acting a little bit loopy. But when you peel back the onion, you begin to understand what he means. He's using extreme language here, about the most extreme language you could ever imagine. Here Jesus is saying, I'm calling you to something that is going to look like hatred of your wife and children and parents in comparison to your love for me. You see in context here, hate is referring to love less. So what he is saying is, you have to love me more than you love your family. When I read this, I thought, wow, I would literally die for my wife, right? I would die for my family and my friends and the people that I love. I would die for them. But then I had this thought, would I die for Christ? Would I die for Christ? We would literally die for our spouses and our children and our loved ones. But would we die for Christ? Is he worth more than our own life or the life of those that we love? And it's easy, just like those in Luke 9, to say, Neil, I would follow him anywhere. But would we? I mean, would we? Is he worth more than that television show you watch on Tuesday nights? For some of you, it might be The Bachelor. I don't even know if that's still a relevant show. Um, but if it is, is he worth more than The Bachelor, right? And I know some of you are thinking, Neil, but you don't understand. If I don't watch it at 7.03 on Tuesday nights, somebody's going to post about who gets the rose, and my life will be ruined, okay? Do they still give roses? I guess. I don't know. I'm talking to the wrong crowd, I guess. Um, but listen, I get it. I'm not saying TV is bad, and I'm not, I mean, that's just a terrible example, right? But you have to love Christ more than you love anything. That's what the passage is saying. Now, I do want to give the caveat that normally whenever I preach, I'm given these nice, tidy uh, verses to preach over, uh, but this one, the Lord showed to me, so I'm absolutely convicted in every way from this passage. I mean, it is tearing me up. So anyway, switching gears here, let's talk about this word disciple. It's really important that we understand what this word disciple actually means, because in our modern era, we have uh, we just kind of lose the meaning of the word. So this word here is methetes, mu, alpha, theta, eta, tau, eta, sigma. It is not a fraternity. It's a word, methetes. Okay, it means learner or student. It is one who associates with their teacher with radical fealty, giving up everything to learn from, to follow, and to become like. 
So if we just take examples from the Bible of what it means to be a disciple, and we just look at the 12 disciples, like the most famous disciples, right? So Peter, Peter was married. He was married, and he followed Christ around for years, and inevitably ended up being crucified upside down. No big deal, right? Um, but without going into the details, every single disciple was crucified, hung, you know, thrown off towers, all kinds of stuff like that. It wasn't quite a fairy tale. Even the author of this book, Luke, who was a physician, he wrote Luke and Acts, uh, he, was, he was hung from an olive tree, right? It was not all sunshine and rainbows. But there was the one disciple, there was John, and he somehow escaped all that, right? I mean, he had a pretty easy life. I mean, he was boiled alive a little bit there, um, and he did make it to old age of, I guess he died of natural, college, um, natural causes on the island of Patmos where he was exiled, right? So if we just look at the stories of the disciples, we see that it is not a fairy tale story by any stretch of the imagination. But that's what following Christ meant for these folks. And, and Jesus, when he was walking and he turned and he said these exact words, he knew what that meant. He knew what he was asking of his disciples. He knew what he meant, or he knew what he was doing when he asked his followers that they had to be willing to give everything. And he wanted them to consider what that meant. And this wasn't like, you know, the disciple life mission trip to Belize, right? This was the Middle East when it was pretty hard to be a Christian. Now, hear me say this. If Crosspoint Fellowship is going to Belize on a mission trip, sign me up. I'm the first one to go there. But the 12 disciples certainly did not have drinks with little umbrellas in them. It was a hard life for these guys. So, just trying to bring the text to life, just trying to expose what Jesus is saying here. When he turned and he spoke to the crowd, he's saying, Follow me, you have to be willing to write a blank check for no matter what the cost is. So there's three main conditions in this text this morning. And the first is in verse 26. It's simple. Love Christ more than you love anything. Love Christ more than the most amazing things in the world, more than the stuff that he actually gave you. Love Christ more than anything. And we find the second condition in verse 27. So I'll read verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So the second condition is bear your own cross and come after him. So what does that mean to bear your own cross? It's kind of funny language, right? We might not necessarily understand here in our context, but if you looked in Matthew 10, 38, it says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What this really means is embrace God's will no matter the cost and follow him. No matter the cost, follow him. And then in verse 39 of Matthew 10, it says, you will find life. In doing so, you will find life. So what I love about the Bible is God has every right and authority to be able to say, you should do this. You will do this. But he really never does that, right? He says, do this and this is why. So that, therefore, 
here are your reasons. I love that about the Bible. So we see here, bear your own cross. Crucifixion is a shocking metaphor for discipleship. It is a horrible instrument of execution. It is a willingness to die an excruciating death. It was something that, the crim- that they did to criminals, so you would be treated like a criminal. It was an official opposition. What I mean by it was an official opposition means that it was premeditated. It was decided by a jury that this should happen. It wasn't like some angry mob got super emotional and decided this. It was official opposition. It was utterly shameful because you were stripped and beaten. It was unspeakable suffering, and it led to death. But when you bear your cross and follow him according to these passages, you are saying, I want Jesus more than I want to live an opposition-free life, a shame-free life, a life free from suffering. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Christ said, bear your cross because that's what I'm going to do. If you're going to follow me, you do as I intend to do. You die to self. So are you willing to endure official opposition? Are you willing to be shamed? Are you willing to suffer? Are you willing to die for me? So verse 28 through 32, there's two parables here. Two parables. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the costs, whether he has, have, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a fa- foundation down and is not able to finish, all who seize it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to an encounter, another king in war, will sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So consider these normal events back in the day. It would have been ludicrous to not count the cost of these endeavors before embarking on them to see if you could actually finish these things. These were huge decisions. Jesus says, will you start building a massive structure before you know whether you have enough time, money, and materials to finish, lest your friends ridicule you? Would you not go to war without counting the odds of even the ability that you might win? I mean, my dad used to always say, son, never pick a fight that you, don't, that you know you can't win. I listen to that about 50% of the time. But this is a massive decision. You're talking about going to war. You're going to count the costs of going to war. There was a book by John Stott called Basic Christianity, and it says this quote. It says, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect the cost of doing so. The result is a great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, 
large number of people have covered themselves with decent but thin veneers of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great cushion. It protects them from the hard and pleasantries of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrisy in the church and dis dismiss religion as escapism. Now listen, John Stott was coming in hot, all right? And if you, if you like want to talk about that or tease that out, I'm more than willing to do as such. Please email, email uh, kyle.carlson at crosspointfellowship.us. Listen, John Stott has some phenomenal points in here talking about the derelict ruins of a half-built foundation in Christianity. But every day, we count the cost of things. I mean, some of us might need to dwell on that a little bit more, but every day, when it's a big decision, we count the cost. Yes, I can afford that house. Yes, I can afford that car, whatever that is. No, I can't do that because I don't have time, but nobody stops to just count. Well, let me rephrase that. It would be wise to stop and count the cost of what that means to call yourself a Christian. Jesus is saying, pause for a second, think about what I'm asking you. Y'all have been following me around, clinging to my every word, witnessing miracles. Right here, we're in the honeymoon phase. Consider what this looks like in the long term. Consider what you believe. Here in our uh, in our context, in, in this beautiful, great country of America, right? Uh, oftentimes, we have this idea where we overlook the hard stuff. We like to see things through rose-colored co glasses, right? We talk about how amazing the Bible is, how we, like, lift it up. And I was, as I was preparing for this, this message, I was kind of thinking, wow, what, what is the cost of believing that the Bible is inherent, right? Well, for, for me, it means that there's a lot of people in my life that I love very, very dearly who are not going to have a great eternity. That's a cost of the Bible. It means that Lauren and I are going to have to give a lot of our well, hard-earned money. It means that we have very precious little time, and we're going to give a lot of that away. It means that we have to love people, even on bad days, and even people that are super, super annoying and that one haunts me more than anything. It means that we have to be okay with being inconvenienced. It means we get to be a part of a local church body, even when it is really, really, really hard. It would be foolish not to consider the costs when you're saying that you're a Christian. Jesus is saying, don't take this lightly. You might not be in fear of being crucified or boiled alive or losing a limb or getting chunked in the Colosseum with lions or anything like that that these early church brothers and sisters were, um, were facing on a daily, but God is going to call us to something. Make no mistake, God is going to call us something, and we will likely lose something in the process. It's not going to be fun. You might not lose everything, but you're going to lose something. But the charge there is remember what you gain. So verse 33. So therefore, so that's important. So therefore, we got all of this stuff. So therefore, 
any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So condition number three, it's simple. Be willing to renounce everything for him. So therefore, in doing so, because of, there are two absolutes in this verse. Two absolutes, they're very simple. The first is anyone. First absolute is anyone. Now this gets us out of that mentality that it's only a select few. It's only like, it's the preachers and the missionaries, right? No, no, anyone. And the second absolute is all. You must renounce all that you have to be my disciple. Your your resources might stay in your stewardship. You might be in control of them now as a steward, but you must be ready at any time to give everything for Jesus' sake. And listen, there's freedom in that, right? In Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure in a field and he goes and he sells everything just to buy that treasure. He bought the field and he got the treasure. Nothing to this man was worth more than the treasure. He gave everything for it. All the so-called costs, like everything, all the so-called costs or losses are nothing compared to the gains of having Jesus Christ, the greatest treasure. Yes, we must count the cost of being a disciple. The cost might be total in principle, or it might be total in actual experience. And in the end, having Jesus means gain, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered, and and the loss of all things I count as rubbish in order to gain Christ. So we did it. We made it to the application. It's only one application. What's it worth to you? What is the worth of being called a Christian? What is discipleship worth to you? Take an honest assessment. Take an honest assessment of that. In preparing for this, I know I had to. We have to have that blank check mentality. There ain't no like, I think I'll go home now in the Christianity realm, right? It's an all or nothing deal. There's no 70% Christian. There's no, if God calls me to this, I'm out. But anything else, I can do, right? There's no 70% mentality in Christianity. It is all or nothing. So is it worth all of your time? Is it worth all of your money? Is it worth all of your sanity? Is it worth all of your life? You you might not be called to give it all, but you have to be willing to. If you know that right from the beginning, if you know that you have to be willing to give everything right from the beginning, then all of a sudden a phone call on Saturday afternoon that you have to go help a friend move a dresser, and that's worship, won't be a big deal, right? Because it's not everything. It's just a dresser. It's an hour. So putting that into context of the willingness to give it all. If you feel this morning like this is a beatdown, or you feel like, ah, maybe I'm a bad Christian because I'm not willing to give it all just yet, I just want you to know you're in good company, okay? You're in a room full of people that, that choose their vices over worship every single day. Your mama might tell you that you're perfect, 
just the way you are, but I promise you, you are not. We are all flawed, flawed, flawed. And once you realize that, you can begin to enjoy the grace that Christ offers. If we were perfect, we wouldn't need him, but we obviously do. There's freedom in saying, Jesus, I know the cost of following you is everything. Yesterday, I was there. Today, I'm not there, but I want to be. Christ, help me reframe my priorities, reframe my thoughts. Help me to not only know that you are worth it, but help me to live like you are worth it. There's freedom in saying, I'm weak. Help. Help. So a guy by the name of Dr. Bob Moorhead wrote this book. It's coolest, coolest title book. Full disclosure, I haven't read it, but coolest title book, Words Aptly Spoken in 1995. I came across this uh, this poem uh, circa 2006, and, and it certainly reshaped me at that time. And so I didn't really know the story of the poem um, until, you know, several years later. But this, uh, this poem is in this book, and Dr. Moorhead describes the scenario. He speaks of a Rwandan man in 1980. And in 1980, uh, this, this Rwandan man was forced by his tribe to either renounce Christ or die. Renounce Christ or die? I think we can all guess what he chose, right? He was killed on the spot. But the night before, he wrote this poem, and they found it in his room several days later after he had been martyred. And it was this poem that inspired his commitment. It's called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. So I'm going to read this poem, and then we'll go ahead and take the supper. It reads like this. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast, I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed, my presence makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by Holy Spirit power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions may be few, but my guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, or deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the, flinch in the face of uh, sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until heaven returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he does come for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear. Let's take the supper.